You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you for joining us tonight, and welcome to our talk, Putting Down Roots, How Green Spaces Can Counter Loneliness. I'd like to first acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we're meeting, the Wurundjeri and Boon people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with us today. I also acknowledge that their lands were never ceded. My name is Lara Brown. I'm the Outreach and Comms Manager for Orin. And today I have the pleasure of welcoming um, two speakers to the stage. So we have Thomas Astell-Burt. He's an epidemiologist, researcher, and professor at University of Wollongong. His work focuses on nature-based solutions for well-being and loneliness, and also how cities impact health and well-being. He's a co-founder of the Population Wellbeing and Environment Research Lab, also known as Power Lab, with Professor Xiaoxi Feng. I wanted to do a quick lit review of Thomas's work, but I would have needed more time since he has led or co-authored over 120 publications, most recently publishing a paper just this week in The Lancet on the effect of nature prescriptions on cardiometabolic and mental health and physical activity. Please join me in welcoming Thomas. We also have joining us Angela Ryan. She's a data analyst specializing in spatial data. She has a background in environmental science and information technology, and has worked on research teams within local and state governments, using data to inform decisions on housing, health, and recreation facilities management. She's currently with the Department of Transport and Planning, and previously worked at Orin, building tools to integrate health and spatial data. Please join me in welcoming Angela. Okay, folks, so the plan is to get into it. So we'd like to have a discussion, and then at the end, we'll open it up first to questions, and then second to comments for our beloved commenters among us. Um, the problem would be loneliness, which has been described as a behavioral epidemic. So serious and prevalent, in fact, that in 2018, the UK appointed a minister of loneliness to address the problem. So Thomas, could I have you comment on, I suppose, the state of loneliness and how it impacts people? Thank you very much, Lara. And um, what a, a pleasure it is to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation, too. Nice to meet you, Angela. And uh, I think we're going to have a great conversation. I would also like to pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today. And I think that, you know, part of the thing that we're talking about here is the environment and how we've done such a really poor job at protecting it over decades of reckless and negligent 
management through things like corporate interests and putting motorways through biodiverse lands and all the rest of it. Many, uh, I view, I think, uh, will be very privy to some of the things which have happened uh, on your patch here. As you can tell, I'm not from around here. I'm, I'm, I've got a Sydney accent, as you can <laughs> pick up, I'm sure. Loneliness, um, I think that there was a, an Australian Psychological Society survey before one thing and another in the last couple of years, which suggested that about a quarter of us in Australia, adults, feel lonely on at least a few times a week. Now, since um, the thing beginning with C happened in the last couple of years, um, my lab has run a nationally representative survey in 2020, 2021, and 2022, not yet this year. Um, and what we found is that the prevalence of loneliness has escalated to about two in five, or about 40%. So if to the extent that you can compare these surveys over time, you might not be able to, but the, the thing that you can take away from this is this, that loneliness is happening in our watch, and it is not a trivial matter. Um, many of us do feel lonely, and when you look at the scientific literature on it, there are a lot of things which perhaps you could think of as um, the bleeding obvious. So to speak, that's what the Monty Python crew would say. Um, for instance, uh, being lonely is not particularly great from the point of view of uh, waking up and feeling fresh as a daisy and that the whole life in front of you is going to be rich and magnificent and rewarding and nourishing in so many myriad of ways. Actually, the very opposite, a sense of despair, a sense of hopelessness, um, a sense that nothing can be done. Um, and I don't want to get us too morbid off a very... <laughs> that's, that's okay. <laughs> but one thing that you might not be aware of, and um, there is research being done on this in Australia, I think maybe Australia is leading the world in loneliness research in many respects, is that feeling lonely and with it unabated also increases risks of other um, things happening which you'd really rather avoid, like heart disease and diabetes and even dementia. So... To cut a, a, a long and drawn out story much shorter, if we are able to nick loneliness in the bud, so to speak, if we're able to try and reduce loneliness in society, we not only alleviate a whole heap of um, suffering that's unwarranted um, from a psychological point of view, but we also safeguard people's physical uh, health for decades to come as well. So it's worth investing in. Thank you, Thomas. So we, we've kind of opened up this, this topic and discussed the state of loneliness. And I guess now we want to link it to our environment and how, would it be accurate to say that going back, was it industrialization that may have played a role in increasing loneliness? And have, have you looked at it historically? So this, um, this is a new thing, which my lab, um, has been working on, new in the last few years, um, so to speak. Um, I think that uh, I'm probably preaching to the choir um, as uh, folks who've come here today to think about and discuss, I hope, um, the roles of green space in helping to ameliorate uh, loneliness. Um, it seems to me, and uh, my colleague, Professor Xiaoqi Fang at the University of New South Wales, um, that the study of loneliness has long overlooked 
the environments in which we happen to be playing out our lives. And not only that, but the environments to which too many people are also excluded um, from, not a trivial matter in any shape or form. A lot of loneliness researchers prioritized understanding it from the point of view of the individual characteristics that people might have, um, their uh, gender, their age, their socioeconomic background. So blame the introvert or... Right. Yeah. Yes, um, personality traits and all the rest of it. But um, the way in which Xiao Qi and I are coming at this are that these traits, these um, characteristics are not determinative of loneliness, so to speak, but they may be signals for potential vulnerability within the context that we've created. So for instance, um, a beautiful study which uh, my lab published uh, a year ago now, I think, it's still a bit hazy. I have an eight month year old, so every day is like very cloudy at the moment for me. Um, and what we found was that um, the mental health returns on investment of living in an area with a good quality green space was substantially higher for people um, who are higher up on the two of the big five psychological traits, neuroticism or a tendency to ruminate, to constantly worry, um, but also people who are a little bit like myself, a little bit more introverted and the, the very definition of a nightmare is to sit on a stage with a microphone with wonderful people and have to talk uh, to people who I can't see because of the light shining directly in my eyes. So hopefully you're not going to beat me up after this. Um, but you see, my point here is thus. The environments in which we are in are in effect shaping whom is more vulnerable to loneliness and who isn't. And so if we can actually flip it and say, let's think about what we can do to change the environments to make them more inclusive, more safe, more enabling for everyone, regardless of their background, then that will go a long way, I think, to helping people feel a lot more included and connected and make life feeling worthwhile. Thank you, Thomas. So, so what's happening when we set foot in a space like this, or maybe even view it from across the street, one could say every time I go to the park, I don't necessarily talk to other people. So how is it, how is it uh, possibly reducing loneliness by, by being simply being in a green space or perhaps viewing it from across the street? So glad you asked. There's, this is a still a work in progress as well. Um, the, the theory that Xiao Qi and I uh, have is called lonelygenic environments, and it's a, a spin-off of the old obesogenic environments theory, which many of you may be aware, wherein the environments that we've created predispose many people to gaining weight and having a really hard time getting it off, if that's indeed what they would like to do. Similar with loneliness, lonelygenic environments, the environments which either cause one to feel lonely or aggravate loneliness or um, subtracting from life the opportunities for us to interact in nourishing ways. The green spaces, which um, you were be able to see uh, about half an hour ago here, I am bowled over by this uh, space in particular. It's a wonderful uh, initiative, well done to the organizers. Um, 
are not only places where you can do, again, the bleeding obvious of coming together um, with people who you do not necessarily know beforehand, but you've got a focal point, something of interest, that weird-sounding, um, English-sounding bloke on the stage who we all disagree with, we're united together in that at least, and you can have a good natter after it then. Um, so green spaces can be parks, reserves, botanic gardens, beaches, lakes, all the rest of it, natural sur surroundings can offer opportunities for people to come together. But there's more going on there. That's just like the, the University Challenge Starter for 10 um, thing. Uh, there, there's lots of psychological research, decades, which has shown over uh, uh, um, uh, a variety of different uh, foci that just being within immersed within a green space. You can have your eyes closed and just be listening out. You can be viewing from way upon high in an apartment block. You can be resting, um, having a, a nice lunch with a friend or reading a good book solo, whatever it is that you uh, find uh, enriches um, your life. All these things really play a role in helping to divert our attention from the, the hustle and bustle of the big city or, or the, uh, the, the, the daily grind or whatever it is that's nagging at the back of your head. There's that. Um, it allows us to feel away, to feel fascinated, to feel that there's something else going on in our lives apart from what's on our smartphones. So that's um, attention restoration theory, getting away from the stress, that's um, psychological uh, uh, stress reduction theory. Um, but then there's my friend over in Uppsala University, Terry Hartig, who's a very big uh, uh, person in uh, this for the last uh, 30 years or so. And he's been very innovative in the way that this research has been done and saying, well, if we are able to um, experiment, for example, and uh, randomly assign some people to go out for a walk in a natural surrounding, some people to go for a walk down this street over here, which is very busy with cars. How do people feel from the point of view of their blood pressure before and after, their ability to spot errors in a, a school report before and after? And so these things are actually able to be picked up as well through very robust uh, um, uh, experimental means. The final way I think really here is the extent to which um, the spaces that we are in transport us um, back to times um, or to places or to communities that aren't physically here now, but are there psychologically? A favorite place that maybe your grandma used to take you to, uh, a place where um, perhaps um, you have very cherished memories of um, a, 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 a certain time in your childhood that you feel um, you revere, maybe to past generations. So this type of um, uh, connection is perhaps too easy to trivialize, but for many people, this is very important from the point of view of stemming loneliness. We know that loneliness is subjective. You can be in a crowd and still feel very lonely. You can be on your own and totally content and feel connected, not necessarily to other people, but to biodiversity, to the world around you, to the birds, the leaves, the, the ants, and all the rest of it. Um, to feel connected to nature is something that I think we should feel a little bit more clearer about. And for those who don't feel connected to nature, 
how can we, if they so wish, help and enable and empower those uh, individuals to feel that connection too? So there's multiple options. Mm. And, you, and you bring up um, something we we'll want to touch on, which is uh, equality and then conversely inequality and in access to green space. So I, I might ask um, Angela to weigh in. So Angela, you're a Melbourne, you lived in Melbourne during the, during the pandemic and during, as some of you may know, Melbourne, I believe, still holds the title for the world's longest lockdown. I think it was 254 days. That was a tough one. And um, how, how was your experience during that when you were confined to a smaller area and, and going out? Did you find that you visited a park more frequently or did you have green space? Did you see that playing a part in kind of protecting your mental health? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think for a little while there, even after the hard lockdown rules were lifted, um, Inside socialising, pubs and clubs were still closed for a long time and the only place you could socialise was at parks. So during the lockdowns, I was lucky enough to be living quite close to Princess Park, um, right across the road from a slackaway that um, goes along Park Street. And so even though I was so disconnected from my usual network of friends and family, I could still look out my window and see everyone who is going through the same thing as me, really, that not able to go to the gym or their usual kind of social activities. And so the slack away was just packed. Everyone was there all day, every day. Um, it was really cool to see. Um, I think Melbourne as a whole, everyone who was here will probably remember when, you know, the limitations on how many people you could see was first, list, first lifted. Um, you would go to your local park and you would just see picnics everywhere and it was such a cool thing to see. Uh, so I would even think that Melburnians have even more of an appreciation of green space now than they did before COVID. I, th I think you're right. And, and that would, that gave a bit of a taste of uh, a kind of enforced 20 minute city or probably even smaller than that. So that's when you can reach everything that you would go to um, school, work, doctors, grocery store within 20 minutes. I think is that a 20 minute drive? Is that what that's supposed to be? Or is it a, is it a walk? Angela, do you know? Um, in the Metro LGAs, I think they're aiming for a 20 minute walk further out in the more regional areas, they think that might be a little bit too ambitious, so they're more aiming for a 20-minute drive. So it depends on the area. And, and you've done some work on that as well in, um, in that 20-minute city. And how much green space, how long should we have to go before we stumble upon something as beautiful as this? Do, do you know um, regulations or recommendations? Or Thomas, I'll invite you to weigh in as well. Thomas might know a bit more about the specifics than I do. All I know is that um, that 20 minute neighborhood kind of is trying to simplify things down. I know that when councils do look at their parks and look at the user base of their parks, depending on the size of the park, they make estimates on the catchment. So they'll say a smaller park will be the more immediate people are using it. The larger parks, people might travel further to get to those parks. So when they're trying to figure out 
what to put in those parks, that's something they take into consideration. Um, but in terms of the 20 minute neighbourhood strategy, it's more around just having, for whatever, I'm sure there's a good logic behind the reasons, but for whatever reason, they've decided 20 minutes, that's accessible to people. And so whatever is accessible within 20 minutes, they want like good green space, activity centres, facilities, all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thomas? Um, I don't have any intel on the exact uh, criteria for what a 20-minute neighbourhood might be, ideally, or happens to be in reality for that matter. But I do have data uh, on um, uh, precisely, I think, backing up um, what, what Angela uh, mentioned in her uh, experience there. Um, we were able to show, over time, we are able to look at um, interactions with green spaces uh, towards the end of the, the, the long, <laughs> uh, drawn-out, protracted uh, uh, lockdown in Melbourne. And in comparison with in Sydney, where similar-sized population, um, but not anywhere near the same level of uh, spatial restriction at that particular point in time. And we were able to look at um, how often people went out to different types of green spaces and the variety of different parks and green spaces that they went to and uh, the different uh, health statuses and uh, other things. Uh, a very rich data set, maybe the only data set uh, in the, the country, perhaps the world, we've been able to look at the same people every year since. And what we found was completely counterintuitive, at least for myself, because not being here, not knowing exactly what life was like um, uh, on the ground, so to speak, my imagination went, well, it's going to be very difficult for people to get outdoors, and if they do, then they have limited time, and if they do, then that means there's going to be limited opportunity to reap the rewards of the beautiful green spaces and natural spaces that you have on your doorstep. How wrong was I? The, the data showed that in comparison to Sydney, where people could pretty much do whatever they liked, folks in Melbourne reaped the rewards from those investments in their time in visiting natural settings way more than their comparators in, frankly, any of the other major cities in Australia. Um, several orders of magnitude more. Um, like, uh, I, I think it was a case of um, people in Melbourne were Going, we're likely to regard their visits to nature as helping them to maintain contact with their neighbors uh, and friends and family members, uh, several times more likely to do that than folks in Sydney where things were much more open to do whatever you like. I guess that what that tells us is two things. The investments that Melbourne have made over decades in making sure that there is relatively more equal opportunity of access to green spaces compared to other cities paid dividends at <laughs> that uh, very challenging moment in time. But also that um, perhaps we don't value these spaces until they become literal lifesavers. We don't value them enough until they absolutely come to our aid and helping us to come together. I think that for many people out there, the only opportunity that they had to connect with others during that time, and maybe also before and after, is in these salubrious spaces that we hopefully will keep and have more of. Thank you. And that, that's true. Um, I'm thinking, so I think I had read somewhere, I, I know you've done some work on benefits, Thomas, um, depending how close, if a, if a park, or I think you've done it on maybe tree canopy, if you had greater than 30% 
um, tree canopy, and you compared that to people who had maybe less than 10 and some health benefits. So we know that, that all green spaces are not created equal. I believe I read something about research where you could show images to people and have them guess, is this a nice neighborhood or not a nice neighbor, you know, based on landscaping. So what, what insights have you gained from that? What do we know about people in lower socioeconomic groups and their need, and you could argue right, to green space and all the benefits? What, what have you learned from your research? Oh, okay. Um, this is where it gets a bit nerdy. <laughs> so I might also pass over to Angela, who's a, a really great data scientist too, might have some local uh, uh, intel on the Melbourne situation. But my, my research has um, uh, uh, often in the last 10 years utilized data from Sydney and Wollongong and Newcastle, the three biggest cities um, in New South Wales. And um, what we've been able to show using um, tracking people over 15, 16 years, um, hundreds of thousands of people linked to hospital records and pharmaceutical use and uh, pharmaceutical dispensation, death records and all the rest of it, as well as knowing where people live and therefore the amount of greenery, tree canopy, other things that they have on their doorstep. What we've been able to find um, is that if you hit about 30% um, tree canopy within a short walk um, from home, uh, compared to less than 10%, um, you reduce the odds of um, developing diabetes over six years by about 31%. You reduce the odds of heart disease. I think it was by about 22%. Hypertension, high blood pressure that is, by 19%. Um, psychological distress by 31%. Poor general health in general. Poor general health in general? Yes, I'll go with that. It sounds weird. Um, poor <laughs> self-rated health in general. Uh, a reduction in the odds by 33%. So this is... I mean, it just shows the investments in tree canopy cover to ensure that there's more ample tree canopy cover available. is isn't just making the places that we live cooler and more salubrious and beautiful to look at. And you can hear the birds chirping from the trees and all the rest of it, but may also be investing um, in uh, various different aspects of our health. I want to also pick up on another study that we did, which is very pertinent to this. We used um, the uh, Household Income and Labor Dynamics in Australia, HILDA, it's a beautiful acronym, um, in, uh, it's all over the country, um, 10,000 to 20,000 people uh, uh, tracked over a year. And what we were able to show over about four years was that if you get about 30% um, parkland within your neighborhood, compared to less than 10 again, you reduce the odds of becoming lonely over about four years by about 26%. In the average adult, adjusting for a range of other factors, competing explanations. But, and here's the kicker, I think. With more and more people living alone, not just um, people who, you know, just out of uh, school and out into the great wide world, but also people who are living alone because they've lost a partner uh, later on in life, perhaps. For, it's a growing sector of the segment of the population. Having a similar amount of parkland within your neighborhood, so to speak, reduces the odds of becoming lonely by 52%. Well over half. You count 2%. I do. I don't know of any other potential intervention that is quite this promising for reducing the odds of becoming lonely over time. 
I think that the urban planners might have a solution on their hands. That's, I, I think you're laying out a clear mandate for more and better green spaces. Um, Angela, anything to add on, on those points? Um, only that I know tree canopy is a big hot topic within all the local councils around Melbourne for environmental reasons to do with hotspot. Um, and so it's great to hear that there's even more benefits and more reasons for councils to keep pursuing a policy of more more tree canopy. Excellent point. And, and, and Thomas, is it simply the if, the, if you don't have the tree canopy, you do a quick mental calculation that it's too hot. I'm not walking, I'm not walking down the street. There's not enough shade. And is, it, is that it? That could well be part of it. For sure. So you're going to have these um, ambient benefits wherein um, having the trees outside may be a draw for people to go uh, for a walk or to keep active or, or whatever, maybe to walk to the shops rather than get in the car. Um, of course, in places where I do a lot of work with clinicians in hospitals in Western Sydney, um, things are quite spread out where you have really no choice but to get in the car, even to go to the park. Never mind to go and pick up something to put on the plate at the end of a day. So there is um, this fundamental issue of many communities aren't built from the point of view of being walkable. Um, but that's getting perhaps slightly off topic. The point that I was trying to get to was that just by being within your home, having a certain amount, a decent amount of tree canopy cover nearby is tending to show that the whole area becomes a little bit cooler. If you're in the shade, 10 degrees cooler, which is obviously not trivial on uh, a very warm day. It may also help to protect people from the, uh, the hustle of uh, the, the, the back end of buses and trucks and all that smog. Um, there is also interesting research from my colleague over in Bulgaria which is showing that having more trees nearby can also maybe not necessarily dampen the uh, acoustics, the, um, the uh, impact of noise, um, but there's a psychological impact here, psychoacoustic pathway in which having more trees nearby makes you feel, okay, there's lots of noise, but your being, attention is being diverted. It's not quite so annoying um, for you. And maybe that's why we're all having a wonderful, I hope, uh, conversation here, despite a, a pretty mm -hmm. busy road <laughs> just over there. So there is that to play. I just wanted to, um, uh, it would be remiss of me not to complete my previous answer mm -hmm. by saying, we're not just doing this research because we're nerds and we enjoy it. And um, although that is, of course, I think, more true than I would care to admit. Um, but people in local councils, for example, in Wollongong, for example, in the city of Sydney, have actually said, you know what? We think you're onto something. And we would like to integrate what you found into our long-term plans for investing in tree canopy cover. So now, for example, picking up on our work and directly citing it and saying that it was very important, City of Sydney Urban Forest Strategy has invested uh, $400 million there, give or take a few million, in trying to ensure that all of the city of Sydney has a minimum of 27% tree canopy cover, investing in 
disadvantaged and low canopy communities to ensure that over a period of time, there will be more tree canopy for everyone to enjoy, not just the folks who have a bit of extra change in the bank and can afford uh, a more expensive place to live. Similar in Wollongong, 17% tree canopy cover, I think, a few years ago. They're aiming for 34%, which is even better in my book. Um, it shows that this research here, and maybe many of you are doing this research too, can have an impact, not only here, but in cities and other places. I believe it's um, Barcelona, Vancouver, Seattle, Canberra, um, Van uh, Singapore, um, all have set targets there or thereabouts of 30% tree canopy cover. So it's slowly filtering in around the world. We're making that, an impact. That's amazing. Excellent work, Thomas. Um, we, we need to check with City of Melbourne and see if they have a target. And if anyone knows, we'll invite you to share that as well. So w picking up on what both of you have said, and I think of Angela describing people, and I think I saw photos in the paper of people gathering at Prince's Park. Like it was packed to the point where they were like, okay, don't get too close to one another because we're still trying to, you know, we're being careful and we didn't know quite as much as we did back then about the virus. So people kind of figured out for themselves that that was um, a healthy thing to do, which brings me to some of your recent work, Thomas, on nature prescriptions. What can you tell us about that? It's, um, it's a very, if I do say so myself, it's a very, very exciting uh, 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 topic of research. Um, my uh, friend and colleague, um, Melissa, Dr. Melissa Lem over in Vancouver, has been uh, spearheading a national program for nature prescriptions over in Canada. Um, and uh, this is not a new thing, um, but this is a big thing um, over there, and I think should be over here to nature prescription. Um, you may be familiar with the term social prescription. Um, the idea is this, uh, you go see your doctor, um, or health professional, and um, they may be able to do certain things which help with certain uh, uh, misadventures or certain uh, uh, issues that one may be experiencing. Uh, the, the classic example would be talking therapies or antidepressants for one uh, experiencing depression. Um, but there is also the adjunct uh, idea, the uh, not intended to replace but to add on, the idea that maybe there are other ways, sustainable ways, that we can help to alleviate um, uh, a person's feeling of depression or anxiety or, or whatever it happens to be. And that is um, a recommendation, a suggestion, to spend more time in a natural surrounding. But not just the educational, the encouragement side of things, but um, evidence-based recommendations on what could be done and referrals or recommendations to join something like Park Run. I don't know if there's a Park Run nearby. Um, Albert Park is, I think Albert Park has, I think, the largest Park Run in Australia, about almost seven to 800 people every uh, Saturday, 8 a.m. Yep. Yeah, so that's a very popular one. Uh, if there's local community gardens that people could get um, involved with or, or bushcraft or uh, bush restoration in particular in um, certain areas affected by uh, horrific um, uh, fires in recent times. A whole heap of things, horticultural therapy. Um, during the 1980s, a movement, I guess, um, emerged in um, Japanese cities I think maybe also a South Korean city is called Shinrin-yoku. It refers to, loosely translates as forest bathing, or taking in the forest 
air. Um, and the idea is you get off your smartphone. Not sure there was many smartphones in the 1980s, but you know what I mean. Um, you get off the big brick that you were carrying around in the 1980s. Um, you get off your tablet. You, um, you mo notice. You take a moment for yourself over maybe hours. Um, you see what's happening um, around you. Um, you do not have to run. You do not have to walk very fast. You, do not to, you can just lie on the ground and be still and try. Some people call this grounding, in fact, taking off your shoes and feeling the bare earth among your, your wee toes. Um, this seems to have benefits, both psychological and, and physical. Point here, and I'll wrap up this uh, uh, short story a little bit shorter, um, is that if we can find ways to enable people who don't have these opportunities for whatever reason it might be, and it's not just a case of supply it, build it and plant it and they will come, we know that's not going to work for everyone. So how do we find ways to also enable people, build people's capacities, strengthen those capacities, so that everyone reaps the rewards of these multi-million dollars investments in our natural landscapes? So do, do we expect to see some nature prescriptions happening in Australia soon? I think we already are. Yes? Um, just, uh, so this is a GP with a script? It, 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 can, really? de it can definitely be a GP. Um, my uh, colleague, Dr. Rowena Ivers, uh, down in Wollongong, GP, Associate Professor in the University of Wollongong, has um, been prescribing nature in addition to the standard things that you would expect a GP to be doing. She was on the ABC yesterday with Professor Xiaoqi Fang talking about this because our Lancet paper was published and people wanted to talk about it on the ABC. Um, you'll be hearing more about this um, on ABC Radio Melbourne hey. on Tuesday next week. Um, if you really, really want to hear my <laughs> dullard voice uh, at that point. Um, but you may have got used, uh, sick of it by then. Um, point being that I think there are probably a lot of GPs out there doing this intuitively, maybe because they think this is you know, a good thing. They do it for themselves. But do we have a systematic approach which enables all GPs to say, this is a credible thing that I can provide to the person in front of me, that the person in front of me is going to find it acceptable, that they're not going to be costed out because of a certain income bracket, that it's going to be something that will be a meaningful use of their time. And I think that systematic approach can only be determined through the trials that um, we've won some <laughs> government funding to run. Amazing. Hopefully over the next few years, we'll be in a position to actually develop a roadmap, a strategy to enable all GPs to be able to do this in the coming years. Do you have any inkling as to what the duration and frequency or what that kind of prescription might look like? You know, this is a, an area of contention, okay. I think. Um, I think that it, so much of this depends upon the individual person and what they're experiencing. Um, there is um, work done by, I mentioned Terry earlier, Matt White over in Vienna, uh, and a few others which showed, uh, I think it was uh, in the, the salubrious um, English landscape, um, that, <laughs> take that what you will, um, that uh, about two hours per week is what one might want to invest in, in any form of natural surrounding, to pay dividends for their general health. Although there has been research up in Queensland which shows 20 minutes will do. So, um, and here's the thing. Um, number one, 
I am, for one, uh, the first person to put my hand up and say uh, the, uh, the countryside in England is rather different to the countryside here. Um, so there's no substitute for local evidence. That's what we're going to be delivering here. Um, and um, really, uh, how can I put this? Um, the, the second thing is this. Um, you get what you take in. Right? Um, there was... There was a really interesting study by a PhD student, I think in Sweden, maybe Finland, um, which looked at people who had been exposed to a light stressor before going out for a walk and people who weren't. And I think the light stressor was um, you're under a time limit and you have to spot all the errors in this one page of a student's work and uh, get to it. And of course, okay, so it's a very light stressor. Um, and what this PhD student found was that those folks who had been experiencing that light stress got much more if they went through their walk through a park solo, on their own, a chance to recuperate, to, to restore, to renew, to get over that, that silly little exercise that um, the person might have had. However, the people who did not have that stress, they came raring to go, couldn't wait to get into it. They really got out of it, a uh, kick out of it by being among other people, by connecting with other people, by sharing that experience. Now that doesn't answer your question on duration, but it does, I think, answer another question, which is how do we experience these different forms of natural environment depending upon, you know, the feelings that we have at that particular time? It would not surprise me um, if the more deep, the more severe, the more cutting the feeling a person has, the more time, right, if they have in their, the natural surrounding would be um, restorative. Um, I don't think that there's going to be a ceiling, though, on this. Um, so if you can get more in your life, do so. <laughs> get more. That's amazing. Um, I was thinking, I, I know, I think in one of your papers, um, Thomas, or maybe it was Terry's, it was mentioned that being in nature can um, offer solace to a person, a, equivalent to having a hug from someone. And I thought, what a, what a lovely feeling, because if you've ever needed a hug and you couldn't have one, especially when we think of COVID lockdowns, etc., to, to find that substitute in nature is a beautiful thing. There was, uh, on the ABC I was listening to yesterday, there was um, some people call in and it was with uh, Sarah McDonald. And um, one of the callers said that they, they really get a kick out of um, walking in nature. And they even do work in nature, although I wouldn't recommend that. But, you know, if it works for you, you be you. Um, and what I'm saying here is that she, she expressed the feeling that... Um, being in nature was like a warm hug, um, and she would even hug a tree. Right? Some people go, why? I don't know about that. Um, uh, it's a bit cold, isn't it? It's a bit rough. But, but she, she said it was almost as if the tree was giving her a hug back. Wow. And I thought, well, that's, that's really sweet. This is, I believe we did have a campaign here where people wrote love letters to trees and, and Melbourne's. That's, that's right. I know one other thing I do want to mention before I forget. There is a survey, Australia Park Life, and that's headed by Dr. Paula Hooper in Perth. And it's still open. So if you haven't participated in that yet and you want to find it, you'd Google Australia Park Life survey and you can 
she's taking information, creating data about places that you visit, um, what you do when you go in green spaces, and the benefits that you believe it gives you. So you could help contribute to some more rich data on parks. Angela? I think you can also go in the draw to win some prizes if you participate in the survey too. That's right. <laughs> um, I, I just wanted to pick on from the solace part. There's um, a really interesting study from Sheffield. I think it was Sheffield, uh, up north in the UK, uh, back, back in the, the homeland, uh, so to speak, for me. And um, what this uh, 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 study it was using qualitative methods. Um, uh, I think it was interviews or maybe focus groups. And what they were interested in was people's connection with nature and its um, it, the, the psychological um, benefits. And something very interesting was found, um, at least from my perspective, was that many of the participants felt lonely. Um, they felt, they didn't say it in this, quite this way, but maybe ostracized. Um, lacking those nourishing networks and um, intimate relationships um, that many of us um, enjoy, but not everyone. And um, to some extent, some of the participants in that study even said that they felt that they did not trust other people to, to try and build those relationships. They've been hurt so much, so badly in the past. And this is, of course, Terrible, terrible set of circumstances. But what they did say was that they found that being in nature, being among biodiversity, being among the trees was an opportunity to connect with something which they personally felt to be more trustworthy, less judgmental, more encompassing, more providing of one's um, needs at that particular time. And so what that tells me is that the stereotypical experience of loneliness being without significant others is perhaps too narrowly defined. Um, for many people, um, they may not necessarily need or want or feel at that particular time company with other humans is what really brings them joy. But being out in the great outdoors may be their, their alternative of that at the particular time. I think more research will be probably done on that in the future. That's an excellent point. That reminds me that I say hi to this little cat in my neighborhood, and that, that cat is my buddy. I don't, I don't know its name, um, but I look forward to it at, you know, when I go down the street. That's a nice little bit of joy for me. Um, I would like to do this. I'd like to take a chance to open up the floor to questions. If anyone has questions, yes, and we'll have a, someone will come by with a microphone. Thank you so much. Hi. Um, really nice. Uh, talk by the two professors and also the uh, moderator. I remember during lockdown, um, almost everybody was along the Maribyrnong River. It was like, that was the meeting spot. Um, everyone was there, everyone was, everyone was there. Um, you couldn't get your foot in or your bicycle <laughs> in the path. Um, but we all know that not all parks are created equal. Um, especially for me in the western suburbs, if new development areas, just because you plant a footy oval doesn't mean it's a quality uh, open space for a lot of people. But so I just want to ask, what is the, um, what should we aim for as urban planners or as urban designers to create a quality open space to combat 
loneliness if it's without including trees? Not, not including trees because you already covered that. What would make a really good park? Uh, okay. Um, well, here's the thing. I think that the word quality is a little tricky, um, although we see it often in um, various different, uh, um, you know, I guess, mission statements or, or whatever it may be, reports, ambitions, goals, all the rest of it. I think that quality very much varies for every single member of this audience and indeed uh, 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 my two uh, fellows on stage and myself as well. So saying there is a particular level or accounting of quality within an individual park that caters to everybody's needs and capacities and wants and motivations and desires and aspirations, I think is on a hiding to nothing. Um, that said, we could say that you kind of need to have like a minimum set of things for a community to ensure everybody has at least something in their neighborhood. And I think this is partly getting towards the 20 minute neighborhood idea. Um, National Health and Medical Research Council and United Kingdom Research and Innovation, I think I may have got that right, UKRI and HMRC um, funded my lab led by Professor Xiaoqi Fung and Richard Mitchell, Professor Richard Mitchell over in Glasgow Medical Research Council. I'm part of it. And um, we're looking at the measurable qualities that people have in the whole constellation, hopefully a constellation of parks and green spaces that they have um, on their doorstep within a 20 minute walk, so to speak. Um, and to say this, does an individual park make a difference or is it the network of parks and of possible opportunities for connecting with people and things and biodiversity, which of those really matters? And in that case, if we were to find that it's the, the range of opportunities that one has rather than an individual park in particular, that I think maybe gives urban planners a little bit of leeway to say, how can we ensure that while there's no perfect park for every single person all of the time, maybe within the range of the network of different green spaces that people have in their doorstep on within their community, there's at least something that caters to everyone's needs and capacities. I think that we're gonna see a lot more about that. That use of network terminology came up in the Greening City uh, uh, report by the New South Wales government architect. It's it featured, I think, in the uh, uh, Green Space Scotland report from a few years ago. So it's internationally been recognized, but there's not really a lot of evidence to say what those things are that really help to keep people healthy and out of hospital. And that's exactly what the project that we're doing right now, analysis to start 1st of May, is hoping to deliver on. So let's exchange details and hopefully I'll be able to give you a solid answer to your question when the evidence is in. But I think we're thinking along the very similar lines, hopefully. Oh, thank you. Hi, um, I was just wondering, is there uh, any research or have you found any data on the difference between sort of contrived spaces like city parks versus natural landscapes? 
this is a question I get often. Um, and also, does it matter whether it's, say, a, a London plane tree or is it a native tree? Or, you know, there are different varieties and that sort of thing. And I think the, the answer is, um, unfortunately, I'm not sure um, exactly what uh, the evidence uh, says on that, or indeed whether there is uh, studies in particular. Um, but I do think that there is evidence to show that the, for example, the astroturf, the artificial grass is nowhere near as good as absorbing the heat. Maybe there are some people in the room. Uh, the room? Yes, the room, uh, so to speak on that. Um, but there are places where it's very, very, um, you know, not much sunshine going on, very, very wet, and perhaps there are certain types of grass which don't really grow. So having a artificial grass there at least says to people, this is a place for play. This is a place to come and lie on the ground. It's soft, it's green. It's the next best thing that we can do absent of, of natural landscape. Although I think that any urban planner would be saying, how do we get the natural stuff in there if at all possible, and I, I certainly hope that would be um, the case. Um, one final point on this was, in the same survey that my lab ran over the last few years, we also measured people's subjective feelings about the qualities of the green and natural spaces that they have nearby. And we looked at things like amenity, aesthetic, accessibility, uh, you name it, we tried to ask it. It was a very long survey. Surprised that 5,000 people actually filled it in, frankly, but we, yeah, it worked. And what we found was that those folks who felt that their local parks had the qualities that they needed, whatever they were, that they needed, they were four times more likely to visit and five times more likely to get some form of restorative benefit out of it than those who felt those parks do nothing for me nearby whatsoever. So I think that maybe relates also to the first uh, questioner's uh, question <laughs> um, in that it's a very subjective, uh, relational uh, thing. And I guess there's no substitute for wearing out shoe leather and getting out into communities, asking people, what do you want in your local parks? What do you feel you need which isn't there in your local green spaces? And how can we address that together? Thank you. I think we have time for one more question. Did I see a question over here? Yeah, um, I'm wondering if there's been much studies done in uh, determining um, like which uh, from the public events or public activities or community groups are successful in um, reducing loneliness amongst people. Thank you very much for the question. I think that the, the thing which comes to mind most is, um, is something which I hadn't come across before arriving in Australia just over 10 years ago. And that is the, the concept of the men's shed. I think it's an absolutely fabulous idea. And I understand that in some parts of the country they've been defunded, which I think is a tragic loss. Um, to, to my understanding, um, um, being a bloke myself, I know a little bit um, about how <laughs> it is um, uh, um, somewhat tricky to uh, meet other people and not try and go for the stereotypical kind of a blokey one-armsmanship or whatever it may be, um, or, uh, you know, um, get subsumed into uh, uh, um, other contexts. I don't know. Um, the point being that is um, if 
some men, and I think maybe a lot of men, find it difficult to connect with others and build friendships, then Men's Sheds provides a focal point. And I may be um, speaking to people who are going, yes, I know, but I can't see you at the moment. The point here is that um, the Men's Shed provides a focal point for people to come together over shared interests to do something which enables a bit of chatter, enables a little bit of teamwork, the sorts of things which help people over a period of time to create ritual, to create feelings of togetherness, to create feelings of integration, to create that sense that you belong, that you're attached. And I think that for so many people out there, not just blokes, everyone, this is a challenge. The more that we can do this sort of thing, I think the better. But unfortunately, I feel that it's going in the opposite direction. Um, maybe there are other examples too, which the audience can, can say, particularly from this context here. Um, I, back in the day, um, turn of a century, Robert Putnam, famous bowling, for, uh, 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 bowling alone, remarked on the decline of um, uh, civil, society, civil society, civic association, uh, um, associational membership. I think that this is very much playing into those types of discussions, wherein, we're losing, through an increasing process of individualization, being on our smartphones and all the rest of it, opportunities to interact in person, meaningfully with other people, in ways which create that feeling of we are whole. We are not one. We are part of a community. Um, these wonderful, salubrious, beautiful green surroundings which you have in Melbourne, I think, are part of the answer. Very good. Thank you. Go ahead. Yes. Yes. Sorry, did you want to say, you wanted to ask what we, what the talk is about? Oh, oh, sure, sure. Um, what, what we learned, yeah, you'd like me to recap a bit. Is that what you're asking? Sure. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Um, I think that green space is indeed necessary. It's not a, just a nice thing to have, but that um, research that Thomas and his cohorts have done can actually put pressure on um, local government areas to implement and make sure that sufficient green space is available and to also make sure that it is equitable. So I know some of your research pointed out that, that there is that inequality and um, the, the importance of that. Angela, anything to, that you wanted to add? Um, I think I learned a whole lot. I really enjoyed listening to Thomas speak. Um, I think what really stuck out for me was this idea of a prescription in that it's kind of combining a really traditional view of medicine with something more, I guess, holistic and free and um, more lifestyle kind of based and environmental based. I thought that was a perspective I haven't really seen those kinds of things in before and I thought it was really interesting. Very good. Thank you all. Um, please join me in thanking our speakers and thank you to all of you for coming out as well. Much appreciated.
You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.